1: Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, this episode 189 being recorded on Sunday, September 22nd, 2019. I'm your host, Jason, Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo.
0: Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, it was. Uh, we've got a lot to cover tonight. Let's see, we got a couple of trip reports, but before we jump into that... I'm dying to know. Did you get your iPhone 11 uh, on New iPhone Day, which was September 20th?
1: I did. I was traveling um, during the the week that it was announced, so I w- I was like at Code Commerce, secretly listening to the announcement uh, in the audience, and then uh, that Friday I was still in New York, so I uh, super convenient for my Apple. They made it 5:30 a.m., 8:30 a.m. East Coast time, uh, so I got to pre-order that. That Friday and I, uh, my phone arrived. Uh, this is Sunday. My phone arrived on Friday.
0: Nice. And well, we got it all moved over and everything's rocking.
1: I did. I, did I think, uh, pictures,
0: some narrow pictures.
1: Yeah. So, uh, I suspect we got similar, if not exactly the same models. I got the 11 Pro Max Green.
0: I got the same thing. Yes. You have impeccable taste, sir.
1: Yes. Twinsies. Um, and I would say the upgrade experience continues to get, uh, smoother and less glitch free. So in general, it was super easy. Uh, one wrinkle, I was using a unpopular feature of the 10, which is dual SIMs. Mm. And so the way in the U S they don't have two SIM ports. So one of your SIMs is virtual and one of them is a physical SIM. So I had a a work phone account and a, a personal phone account. Um, and in the upgrade, Apple converts your former eSIM to a physical SIM. So now uh, I have two physical SIMs and I can't fit them both in my phone. So I'll have to go back to an AT&T store and get a new eSIM. Interesting. Yeah. For all those people that want to have, have uh, uh, a new definition for first world problems.
0: Why don't you just get two phones?
1: Yeah, not a fan. I've carried around a lot of phones, and it's much easier to have two. I mean, to have one, and the two SIM feature actually works quite well, particularly until the day. different until carriers. Upgrades. What's that? Until upgrades. Yeah, yeah. Except for this week. I mean, I'm still fine. I'll uh, I'll still be able to travel with the with the one SIM until I can swing by an AT and T store. Last time I did this, no one in the AT and T store had ever heard of an eSIM, but I have a feeling they've got it all all dialed in by this time. Uh, and so I don't think we need to cover a lot like it's, you know, mostly well-known uh, new features like, you know, largely related to camera. camera. Um, but there is one secret e-commerce e feature that I'm I'm kind of happy about for that would maybe only be relevant to listeners of this show. Um, I'm no. drawing a blank. What is it? So um, in the the Safari. uh Screen capture. So when you, you do the combination of buttons to take a picture of your screen, mm-hmm. you can now uh, it now gives you the option to grab not just the visible part of the screen, but the entire web page all the way to the bottom.
0: Ah, nice. Um, so and, you can get your long checkouts.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so when you're taking pictures of mobile experiences to illustrate to teams or clients or things like that, which is something we do a lot, in the old days, what you had to do is take a bunch of pictures and stitch them together. Um, and so now, uh, this is super seamless and it actually works in Safari and mail and a couple other programs that weren't as relevant, but, but for web pages, that's a, a handy little feature. I don't know if I'd call that an e-commerce
0: feature as much as a chief digital strategy, retail officer feature.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, a UX <laughs> UX benefit, I guess. Uh, and on the flip side, I feel like for the last three years, I've been waiting for the stupid tr- true vision camera to go on the back so that we can finally get our shoe size. Right. But, um, uh, I'll have to wait at least another year for that one <laughs> to, to get the little pixels and all so that we can.
0: Yeah. So of, that front 3D-
1: camera, yeah. um, that does your, your face recognition, uh, has it's an advanced measurement device that measures in 3d and, um, uh, and the, like there are a few retailers that already use that for clever e-commerce experiences. Like Warby Parker will measure your face and recommend frames specifically for your face. And it, it it's like millimeter accurate. Um, so were there to be a camera like that on the back of the phone, you could imagine measuring a space to make sure that the refrigerator would fit the opening in your kitchen or the sofa would fit in your living room or exactly what uh, size shoes you should order from a particular vendor. Um, Nike launched that feature without the fancy camera, but it would be much better with this this hyper accurate camera. Yeah, yeah,
0: agreed. Cool. And while you were traveling, we got a pretty cool recognition.
1: We did, we did. That must have been you because I was busy not focusing on the podcast.
0: It was not me. I think it was it was uh, both of us. It was just people. Someone out there likes our content,
1: our voluminous uh, body of work. <laughs>
0: What is it? You've you know how many hours that people would have to listen to us?
1: Uh, We've we, heard you say this before. Yeah, we're about two hundred hours.
0: Nice. That's uh, that's a lot of us out there in the universe.
1: Yes, yes. So if you ever have the misfortune of hearing me speak in person, I usually open up by saying, in the highly unlikely event you don't get enough of me in the next thirty minutes, there's two hundred more hours of me on the interweb. <laughs>
0: Well, we've got a lot to cover. Let's jump into it. First, we want to get a trip report from Recode Decode that was held in beautiful New York City, September 9th to 10th.
1: How was the show? Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, so we alluded to that uh, in the last segment. But um, this is uh, uh, Code uh, or Recode, the the publication, which is now owned by Vox. They have a very fancy show um, that I went to early in the year uh, that they call um, code conference and uh, Jason Delray there, who's been on the, the show a couple of times uh, is the commerce um, correspondent for them. And he has started this series of events called code commerce. So it used to be like an evening event on top of other shows where he would have like three speakers. And now for the third year in a row, he's had his own standalone two day event in New York city. So this is the third annual code commerce um, and I like it. It's a conference more than a trade show, so there, there's a few exhibitors, but um, it, it mostly is a single agenda of speakers. Everybody sits in the room, listens to the same speakers. Uh, there are no presentations. They're all interviews with journalists, mostly Vox journalists, um, interviewing the, the guests, so it's a pretty dynamic um, dialogue. And, you know, sometimes people, you know, let stuff out that maybe they didn't plan to. Uh, the audience is allowed to ask questions. And so I got a little fired up at some point and asked some uh, some questions of some of the speakers. Um, and so I just really like it. They get a, a, a really good collection of speakers. Uh, and I feel like the format lends itself to getting really useful stuff. It's small and intimate. So the networking was great. I got to meet and talk to a lot of uh, listeners on the show. I got to meet a couple of guests that we've had on the show that we, we did not have in person. So, um, that was fun. So all in all a good thing that one other thing I should say is in addition to that, that sort of speaker format, they also have a half day of offsites where you pick one of like you choose your own adventure of these like eight different offsites, and they take you behind the scenes of a, of a retail or e-commerce business. Um, and uh that those can be cool too. I, I had a conflict, so I didn't get to do that this year. Um but in let's see, what's called 90 seconds or less, um there's probably 18 speakers at the event. Um so there uh there's a guy, Ken Downing, who used to be the chief creative officer at Neiman Marcus. He he moved to a mall um group in, in New Jersey called Triple Five. Uh, and they're they're famous for having taken over this mall development in New Jersey called the American Dream. Um, it's a mega mall owned by the same folks that own Mall of America. They've been trying to open it for twenty plus years. It's supposed to open next month. Don't hold your breath. Based on their their past track record of announcing <laughs> openings and not doing it, um, and I have to be honest, like like the, these guys seemed totally disconnected from reality. Like they're. Just talking about what a great mall experience it is and how everyone in Manhattan is going to want to go to New Jersey to escape Manhattan and, you know, go shop for all their necessities at this this uh giant mega mall. And it's, you know, it's the anchor tenant in the mall is Barney's, who's already bankrupt. You know, all the other tenants are tenants that have eight other stores in Manhattan. It just it just seems like uh, you know, he came up there uh pitching this mall development like half an hour after Scott Galloway did 45 minutes on why malls were dead. Debt- yeah. Um so not super exciting. Uh they uh we had uh, uh, Jason uh, Drogie who's the vice president of Uber everything. So that's all the services at Uber besides uh the car sharing. So he does all the restaurant delivery. Um that you know food is a particularly interesting area for me. Um it was an interesting interview. Uh at the end I got up and asked him if his service was good for the the restaurants because I like there's a lot of evidence that that uh all the all these delivery services are a disaster for the restaurants because the margins are super low, the customers are super opportunistic, and uh the restaurants can't sell liquor in most cases, which is where they make most of their profit. So I had a premise that that these services are a disaster for the restaurant, and these services are now twenty percent of all restaurant consumption. Um, so that's a pretty big inflection point. And uh Jason did not have a good, a very good, satisfying answer for why he was, he was good for the restaurant business. Did he at least disagree with you? Uh, No, like he did not make a strong argument. We were talking about that after the fact, he kind of like pivoted away from the question Mm. Um, and talked about, you know, what, like, you know, how they could be good for restaurants, but not like the underlying economics of it being tough. Um, Scott Galloway, uh, did a couple things. He recorded a podcast, uh, the, the final episode of, uh, Land of the Giants with Jason Delray, and he did a 45 minute presentation. Um, I mostly enjoyed it. I've sometimes been critical. I, I think Scott is super funny and has a lot of insightful things to say. Um, but he has a tendency to be highly repetitive. So if you've seen him once and then you see him a bunch of other times, it's, it's a lot of the same content, which is maybe something all all public speakers uh, struggle with. Um, but I would actually say most of the content at this show uh, where may have been thoughts I had heard of his before from Twitter when, or whatnot, but it was the first time he had put them together in a presentation. So I thought that was good and interesting. And he was, uh, you know, he's been super negative on the, the WeWork um, IPO. And, uh, you know, so he spent a lot of time talking about those guys. Um, he's you know, kind of, uh, bullish on breaking up Amazon. So he shared his POV on, on that whole thing. Um, and, uh, you know, just, uh, had some uh, sort of interesting controversial POVs, which is what he's, he's usually known for. He also pointed out that like, from his perspective, the mall business is just totally dead and the specialty apparel business is next to go after that. So, um, that boded poorly then for the American Dream Project, which is a mall full of specialty apparel retailers. Uh, so next up, Jennifer Hyman from uh, Rent the Runway. Um, so that's a awesome story. She's one of uh, uh, three really well-known female entrepreneurs in our space. Um, and that was an interesting conversation, uh, talking a lot less about the their original model and more of their their monthly rental model and, and uh, you know, some of the the new competition that's emerged in the rental space. So that was an interesting conversation. Uh, David Kahn, the CEO of Birkenstocks. Um, Scott, you'd be familiar with him because he's, he's had, he's been one of the most outspoken controversial positions on Amazon. They were selling a ton of shoes on Amazon, essentially pulled off the platform completely because they felt like they couldn't protect their intellectual property. Now they're, they're back on Amazon in a very conservative, mild way. They've authorized a few resellers to sell on Amazon, but they don't sell direct. And David was prominently featured in an episode of Land of the Giants that focused on why Amazon could be bad for companies and potentially should be broken up. So it was interesting to hear from David. And I was um, joking with you before the show. You know, a brand like Birkenstocks, you you kind of expect a hippie with like long hair and Birkenstocks to walk on stage, and he, can't, you know, he's like a Looked like a banker in a in a like custom suit, so it was kind of funny. <laughs> um, so then we had your favorite brand on, uh, both uh, uh, Steph Corey and Jen Rubio from Away. Um, and so they talked a lot about their their uh, growth strategy and and um you know some of the success they've had and some uh, their their uh, retail strategy moving forward, and that was all uh, somewhat interesting. Um, Max Levchin, who's the founder of a firm, which is an interesting payment model that a lot of e-commerce sites use. They're, uh, uh, sort of an interesting, uh, financial model. They're, they're like a no fees lending system. So you get charged no late fees. Um, uh, there's some really interesting novel things about it. Uh, and he, he was sharing that. Um, we had, uh, Marie, uh, Marna Levine, who's the VP of Global Partnerships at Facebook, and so she was mostly talking about Instagram and and uh, Instagram Checkout, which is something near and dear to um, to e-commerce folks, and a little bit about the Facebook Marketplace. Um, and again, you know, she painted a pretty rosy picture. Uh, I got a chance to get up and ask her a couple questions. I asked her, you know, if uh, I said, hey, there's a bunch of, from my perspective, like UX problems with Instagram Checkout that make it not very appealing to brands. Like most notably, you can only sell one product at a time. Um, and I asked if they plan to evolve that. And she she said that, yeah, they still consider Instagram Checkout a real early beta and they, they would expect it to evolve a lot before general release. And I said, you know, bigger picture, you talked about how important it is for consumers to have stored payment information to make things like this work. Like, you know, is it realistic that customers are going to ever trust Facebook with their payment information, like given your, your track record? And she totally dodged that question and talked about like all the great security features they were using for payment, which was not the point, right? Like, obviously I'm sure Facebook is using the best uh, encryption technology and tokenization, but it's, the point is they're, they're a damaged brand when it comes to trust and uh, it's going to be really interesting whether they can get a bunch of consumers to give them payment information and gave her a chance to answer that. And she, she was not uh, very uh, compelling in her answer. Uh, and then wrapping up uh, probably the big marquee interview was Mark Laurie, who's the president of digital at Walmart. Jason had written a, a somewhat negative article that was like super popular a few months before. So I would say props to Mark for, for coming into the lion's den and facing him. Um, and, uh, not shockingly a well-polished Walmart exec did not break a bunch of news in the interview. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, it was interesting to see him there. And, you know, there were a few questions where I would say like he did not seem as enthusiastic as you would expect someone to be, um, that was like super fired up about their role. Like, I think Jason, you know, like tried to grill him on whether he was going to leave Walmart at the end of five years um and you know, Mark's answer is like absolutely, I I've like committed to be there. And Jason's like, Wait, are you staying because you love it or because you made a commitment? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that that was a little interesting. Uh Jeff Raider's one of the co-founders of Harry's, that's a great uh D to C story. Julie Rain Wainwright, who's the CEO of Real Rio, was um uh one of the most colorful interviews of the show. Um so that was cool. Uh, and then uh uh Tara Walpert uh who's the VP of agencies at U- at uh, Google who's mainly focused on YouTube. Um and so she talked a lot about like how how they're they're expanding influencer marketing and expanding uh commerce features on YouTube. So that's a pretty rich robust lineup that had a you know bunch of different stuff for different people and I, I thought it was well worth the time.
0: Cool. So uh it seems like Lori had bet a lot on grocery kind of going digital with the curb pickup and then also all those acquisitions they did on digitally native vertical brands. Were were those still kind of near and dear to his heart or, or had the bloom kind of come off that rose?
1: I think the answer is yes and no. So I think they're Walmart is super bullish on grocery. Part of Jason's article was Mark tends to get a lot of credit for digital grocery. And apparently that's creating some, uh, um, conflict because most of the digital grocery work actually happens in the stores. And, you know, Mark was like, hey, like that's totally fair. Like this, the stores are killing it on digital grocery. And yeah, we probably do get disproportionate amount of the credit. Totally understandable, but digital grocery is going awesome. So he, like, I would say he had a good answer and doubled down on digital grocery. On uh, digital native brands, it it was a little bit like yeah. Originally we bought some brands and that's no longer the strategy that we're much more bullish on incubating brands from scratch in house than we are buying brands. And I, I he confirmed a rumor that Jason Delray had heard that um, one of the acquisitions ModCloth, that there, there might even be discussions going on to uh, to sell it back to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think Mark like would express that he was still bullish on the space and um, but that, like you know, they had learned at Walmart. That like buying a brand and integrating it was was probably a challenge. So he pointed out, he pointed to like um, Allswell Home, which is a digitally native brand that they incubated in house. Um, and then there was kind of a third category that they were talking a lot of a, a little bit about, and you may have seen some news, um, sort of you know turning up the the focus on the marketplace, which uh, is probably near and dear to your heart. Uh, and I think they've announced a pilot of fulfillment by Walmart which for the first time they had to let uh, that that help fulfill products for some of their third parties and that they have an interest in dramatically improving their tool set and uh, you know improving the experience for third party sellers so
0: cool seems like a one theme um, with rent the runway and maybe a way would be the IPO market did that come up because uh, the IPO market's been somewhat open with chewy getting out and um, real real and a couple other folks uh, and those guys are kind of both could be on in the pipeline. Did, did Jason drill into him on that?
1: He did. Yeah. Yeah. So there was in, uh, the, the pre IPO companies were mostly pretty coy, which you, is kind of what you would expect, um, that they, you know, they're open to it and aren't, you know, aren't aren't closed, but that they don't need to d- go public. And that's not that, you know, they didn't start the pub the company to necessarily go public, um, uh, Julie Wainwright, you know, who's at the real real and they, they finished their offering already. Right. Am I?
0: Yeah. They've been out for a while. Yeah. They've done really well. Yeah. You know, she well.
1: had a lot more, um, sort of insight about what, you know, the, the pros and cons had been on the other side and, and, uh, uh, you know, ha- uh, there was, there was some interesting conversation about, um, the impact of competitors and their successful IPO, you know, bringing more people out of the woodwork. Um, She also has a totally fair and interesting POV about being a a female entrepreneur and some of the challenges raising money. And she's like, you know, she talked a lot about how like um, she had to spend a lot of time convincing every male investor why, the, the business use case was even appealing to women. And she's like, you know, n- nobody at we work at Uber ever had to explain to an investor that like small businesses need office space or people need a ride. Right. Um, but, but she often would have to convince someone that, that, uh, you know, that women, uh, would benefit from buying these used luxury goods and that auth- uh, authentication was a super important thing. And so she, she told some funny stories and, uh, I felt was sort of appropriately cocky. She talked about one VC that like totally didn't get the pitch and like felt like all the money they were investing in in selling authentic products was was a waste of time. And now that, that they've had the successful IPO, that VC has funded a, a new competitor and has like published blog posts talking about the importance of authenticity. Um, and I think she's like, uh, whatever, dude, uh, we were here before you and we'll be here after your death. Yeah. Which funny. is kind of nice and bold.
0: Yeah. I've heard the uh, Rent the Runway and the Stitch Fix Ladies tell somewhere story where, you know, a bunch of male VCs wouldn't invest because they, they didn't kind of understand the concept or they would say, well, I don't know. I don't think my wife would use this.
1: Yeah. And kind I think thing. that sounds like the common trend, right? Is that everybody's market research is they go ask their wife and that, you know, that's a pretty small sample size.
0: Yeah. Cool. So then you zipped from there, uh, had a mini Starbucks and went to Vegas for a grocery shop, right?
1: I did. I loaded up on Starbucks, uh, ordered my phone and jetted off to Grocery Shop, which is in Las Vegas. So as a reminder, this is the second year of Grocery Shop. Grocery Shop is a a show by the folks that founded Shop Talk that's uh, focused primarily on grocery and CPG. And so um, it it grew really fast. It was maybe 1,500 people last year. It was 3,000 people this year. the, it was at the Venetian. It felt a lot like Shop Talk. Both Shop Talk and Grocery Shop are moving to Mandalay Bay next year for people that care about their Las Vegas venues. Um, there are Starbucks at both, so it's kind of neutral to me. Um, the, and it was also a good show, I, I'd say in a different way. Um, so most of the, the keynotes at this show um, were Marquee Brands, um, but the content was less interesting to me because for the most part there were brands that were allowed to come up and just give a commercial for their their business and that you know there weren't like critical questions or necessarily new content um so while the you you might have been interested in a lot of the companies in the keynotes um there were folks like uh uh Target and uh um Beyond Meat and Honest Tea and um uh Orcado and Procter and Gamble that were giving keynotes, uh, Coca-Cola, Sam's club, um, that, you know, there wasn't a ton of like interesting, new, you useful takeaways in that content, but the, the 3000 plus people that attended the show were all industry insiders. Um, there are a lot of, uh, the, the breakout panels that were were super interesting and there were just, I just had a ton of useful conversations, um, at the cocktail parties and you know at at the Starbucks between sessions and just felt like the the networking was super valuable for me. Um so kind of the opposite of of Recode, it was less about content and more about networking. Um I did host a couple uh panels, so I was the MC for two panels. I did a a panel called Preparing for Grocery E-commerce that was kind of targeted at people grocers that are just getting into e-commerce, and I had three panelists on that session. I had uh, uh, Stephen Reinman, who's the VP of e-commerce at Haines Celestial, which is a, a house of brands uh, most notable for the Celestial Teas. I had Wayne Dwayne, who's been on this podcast. He's the VP of e-commerce at Constellation Brands, um, which is a, a, a bunch of uh, alcohol and spirits brands. Um, so we actually uh, drank some Coronas on stage while we were chatting, so that was a big hit. And and then I had uh, Dan Bracken, who's the VP of Consumer Insight at Church and Dwight, which is a a big CPG. So they each kind of gave their their learnings and best advice for new people entering the e-commerce grocery space. So I got good feedback that that was useful. And then on the second day, I did a more advanced panel on uh, connecting customer data points. So for this one, we had kind of two keynote panelists. Um, we had a brand and a retailer. So the retailer is uh, Steve Henning, who's the VP of Digital uh, for Wakefern Food Group, which is a big co-op um, of of grocers. Uh, and talked all about uh, where they are in, in data and what their customer data strategy is, and got on all the bits and bytes of uh, uh, DMPs and uh, uh, all those sorts of things. Um, and then from the brand perspective, we had Doug Stranton who's the chief digital commerce officer at the Hershey company. So um, got got his perspective and, uh, you know, Doug has a bonus. Doug was also the chief digital officer at Unilever for a number of years. Um, so so it was kind of there in a lot of their formative uh, growth. So a lot of interesting insights from both of those guys, you know, when you're getting into the hardcore uh, management of data and activating that data for customer experiences.
0: Cool. The... So what's kind of the met, meta topic at grocery? Is it still curb versus home or is it, you know, Amazon jumped the shark with Whole Foods? What, what's kind of the, the big thing or or more almost feels like maybe brands going direct is kind of yeah. rolling. So this, way this there?
1: show, like, so it is, um, like there's a lot of grocers at the show, but there's a lot of CPGs at the show. So one big thing is the whole disruption of CPGs, right? The, the There's a lot of digital native brands that have launched that are like competing with incumbent CPGs. Um, and, you know, I'd say a year ago, the dialogue was like, this is a huge disruption. Um, and this year, like there's more evidence that those brands are, um, you know, can achieve a certain level of success, but then are really sort of plateauing um, the the incumbent CPGs have not successfully launched a new, a lot of new products. And so there's a lot of dialogue about how those companies are doing things to get more customer intimacy and get better connected to the customer and launch products that are more relevant to customers. Um, And then there, there was an awful lot of talk about the sort of third approach in this whole thing, which is retailers launching brands um, and uh, how those, those retail brands have been successful and how they've evolved a lot from the original Sort of private label, uh, and in fact, one of the the keynotes, uh, uh, Stephanie Lindquist, who's the EVP of Food at Target, um, you know, they launched a major, uh, new grocery brand uh, for Target, uh, basically at this show. So, um, uh, so her keynote was a lot about this new food brand and that the 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 retailers sort of competing with the the incumbent and challenger CPGs is was a, a big conversation at the show.
0: Yeah. And then um, watching your Twitter feed, it seemed like there was some interesting target kind of talking going on there. What what did we learn from target?
1: Um, well, a couple of things, like, so target is maybe the poster child for being the most successful at that strategy. So they've launched like five brands that now sell over $2 billion, but one place where they haven't been big is in grocery. And so in fact, like grocery was a new-ish strategy for Target, maybe we'll call it seven or eight years ago. And while a lot of the categories at Target are kind of known for surprising and delighting customers and having these, you know, premium products that that the customer wouldn't expect, um, grocery was always sort of a me-too category for Target. Like like if you needed something, they, they may have had it, but it wasn't something you were excited about acquiring. Um, and so, you know, a lot of... Uh, this conversation, uh, what was about Target doubling down on grocery and you know trying to get to the point where they're surprise um, and delight for grocery in the same way that they they are for other categories, and they you know so they launched a new owned brand for food called Good and Gather. They kind of retired a lot of their older brands, um, and you know this is a, a focus on. Simpler products, fewer ingredients, non GMO, mostly organics. Um and so it's not so much a knockoff of a of a national brand, but you know, a, a set of products that they think are particularly targeted at the target guest. Um and they're forecasting that this will be the the biggest um owned brand that Target has, which is pretty big because uh, you know, some of the apparel brands sell sell two billion dollars each a year. So Um, so if they hit that forecast, that, that will be somewhat impressive. So that was a lot of the, the target conversation. I would also say like shipped, um, you know, there is a lot of conversation about curbside pickup and home delivery. Target owns a, a a company in that space shipped. And there's a lot of talk about how successful that's been for target, but ship still is in the business of providing those services for other parties. So shipped had a big presence on the, on the trade show floor and was a big sponsor. And so there's, there's a lot of talk about last mile and the various pros and cons of the different methods.
0: Cool. What other highlights from grocery?
1: Um, for me, those were a bunch of the big takeaways. I got to sit, or sit down with a couple of folks and record a couple of podcasts that we'll get out here in the weeks to come. So I mentioned Doug Stratton, who's the chief digital officer at Hershey. Uh, you and I are both chocolate advocates. So like we wouldn't miss the chance Uh, To get a podcast with him. Uh, And then I also got to sit down with uh, April Carlisle, who's the VP of shopper marketing at uh, the Coca-Cola company and kind of talk about how Coke is thinking about digital and what what they're doing in in digital, which is interesting. Um, You know, it is interesting. Like we are now like grocery is a very low margin business. Uh, the average sale price for a lot of these products from the brands is super low, and so historically these have not been very digital categories you You don't think of a big digital investment to to sell dollar candy bars or cans of soda um but you know now these guys are you know front and center focusing on digital because it's really starting to impact their business,
0: very cool. Any other megatrends you want to cover before we jump into some news?
1: Nope. Nope. I think that's a a ton. Um, but if you're in that space, I would definitely think about putting that on your, on your list for next year and come visit us at Mandalay Bay. Uh,
0: I forgot to ask when you're in New York, did you get to see the new Apple store or did you miss, I think you may have missed that. I didn't.
1: The Apple store actually opened this Friday. Ah, okay. Uh, So I've done some video walkthroughs. Uh, you and I are going to be back in New York next, next month together. So maybe, uh, if uh, schedules permit, it would be super fun. We should go visit the store together.
0: Yeah. Awesome. I look forward to that. Cool. Well, we want to use the last couple of minutes to talk about some news and it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show without some Amazon news. Amazon news. New, news. Your margin is their opportunity. So uh, a lot of news uh, out there on Amazon. Some of it I would kind of put into the political bucket. Uh, before we talk about that, though, uh, you know, one of the things that kind of hit in my world that was interesting was they made a big uh, investment and order of electric vehicles. Uh, Tesla has a competitor called Rivian, and Rivian's coming out with trucks with electric platforms. Uh, so Amazon announced not only uh, – they invest uh, an undisclosed amount, but they were part of a $700 million round, and they were listed first, which kind of implies they're the largest. Um, but they ordered 100,000 electric delivery vehicles from from Rivian, um, and they're saying uh, they should have prototypes in 2020, start rolling them out in 2021, and have them all on the road by 2024. Um, this is kind of interesting because uh, Amazon has not really said much about being green. A lot of Amazon employees have been uh, you know, kind of uh, rallying internally. Jason Del Rey written about this. So it was kind of a, a pretty big vote for starting to limit their carbon footprint as a company. Um, and then it's also interesting because they are propping up uh, a big rival to uh, to – Tesla in the form of Rivian and, you know, Elon and Jeff are going at it as it relates to rockets. So a lot of people kind of said, this is this kind of, you know, another way for, for Bezos to really kind of get under Elon Musk's skin by supporting a competitor.
1: Oh, interesting. So we might see some Amazon uh, 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 high-speed trains in the near future to them. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Whatever the, the yeah. rival to boring could be.
1: Exactly. The thing that totally struck me about this, which seems like Amazon's exact playbook is I want to say they made this huge announcement the day before there was a big scheduled, um, like, uh, green demonstration and a bunch of Amazon employees were planning on walking out to, to sort of advocate for Amazon embracing, uh, you know, uh, a, a greener footprint. And so, like the, I feel like Amazon has historically been very good at these like proactive PR moves, and it seems like this was, uh, they, they were totally able to leverage that this time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The, um, they have a picture of the prototype van, we'll link to it in show notes, and it looks really good. So it's going to be interesting. The, the big question is really the range on these things. So, you know, the I don't know how much a typical prime van drives a day, but I see them on the road constantly. So it's gonna be interesting to see if they have to come up with some clever way of rapidly charging these things or or if they're gonna shift them in a different way or something. So they each do half a day's closely.
1: delivery, so that's why they had to get so many. Yeah, that could Swap be them.
0: that could be part of it. Uh, so I don't I don't know what the range is.
1: Quick clarification question for me. So like obviously Tesla makes a bunch of electric vehicles and I know they've talked about business vehicles and trucks, but as far as I know, they don't they don't have a like a, a van form factor, I feel like Amazon's bought uh, Sprinter vans in the past, which is the big Mercedes van. Like, is it obvious that this is a that Rivian's a direct competitor with? Like, is this worse news for Tesla or is it worse news for Mercedes?
0: Uh, I think it's probably worse news for Mercedes. Um, Elon, I forget if this was a tweet or a live interview. I've seen him talk about how he really likes the Mercedes Sprinter and they should work together on the electric one. Uh, and he, he always has a little twinkle in his eye and you can't tell if he's just basically crazy or if there's something going on there. Um, I think Mercedes and Tesla have cross-licensed a lot of technology. So, yeah, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if this doesn't force something to go on there between Tesla and Mercedes to get the Sprinter platform
1: electrified. Got you. And I assume that like the big customer will then be FedEx. Uh, I don't know what FedEx uses.
0: So UPS actually has a big electric thing going already. Um, and I, I don't know who they, their platform is on that. It's, um, maybe a Ford platform. I don't know. I don't know what UPS uses, but I've seen them, um, them talk a lot about getting to carbon neutral pretty quickly and they have some, uh, electric vans out there.
1: That's going to be an interesting space to watch. If only there were a podcast about that kind of stuff.
0: I know we will uh we'll keep track of it here and then also on the vehicle two podcast where we spend even more time talking about about kind of vehicle trends going on uh how about on the uh political side there's been a lot of negative stuff out there on amazon um so I'll turn to you for the the highlights on that
1: yeah side note uh, Scott loves talking about the political stuff it's his favorite thing to do so it's a it's a big big uh, uh generosity on his part to to pass it over to me. <laughs> Um uh, yeah so uh you know there continues to be a bunch of neg- negative sentiment you've got all these democratic candidates uh talking about breaking up Amazon without like an a necessarily obvious reason why um the in the last couple of weeks there were some actual like government announcements about like looking into antitrust issues and the one that affected Amazon was that the FTC was talking about probing uh, some of the three P practices. And, and the one that comes up the most is Amazon disadvantaging third-party sellers in favor of their own practices. So essentially like the, the narrative goes, uh, you can't both play in the game and be the referee. It's not fair, uh, that you're selling products in competition with your marketplace sellers and you, Uh, control things like whose product shows up in search and how visible every product is. And so um, that's the big narrative. Like the counter narrative is like, this isn't a remotely new idea. Retailers have been selling their own products for over a hundred years. They, they always put their own products in favorable positions and they charge brands um, in order to have, have good positioning in the store. So that like there's, there's nothing particularly new that Amazon's doing that Walmart and Woolworth before them didn't do um but it is getting a lot of visibility and one of the the big articles that came up that was kind of interesting um is the wall street journal uh actually like ran an article where they they talked to some Amazon engineers that like confidential confidentially admitted that Amazon had changed their search engine to intentionally bias their own products. Um, And so, again, debatable whether that's illegal or immoral in any way, and I'll leave that to others to decide. Um, But one way it's interesting is Jeff uh, has always talked about being the most customer-centric company in the world and wanting to have the best experience for customers. And it's super controversial if you search for Energizer batteries, like it's pretty obvious what your intent is, and you would imagine the best experience would be to quickly get you to Energizer batteries. Um, but when uh, Amazon Basic batteries have higher visibility on that search term than Energizer batteries, like arguably, like you're trying to boost your own profits at the expense of being customer centric, and so it's kind of a a pretty tangible example of of where Amazon might be m- drifting from their, their idealistic morals. Um, and so that, that's been a little interesting to follow that, that exact issue is one of the episodes of uh, land of the giants and a former guest on this show, Charlie Cole, who's the, the chief digital officer at to me and Samsung. Like he, he very explicitly said it. He's like, look, I don't mind competing with Amazon. That's totally fair. They can make products to compete with me. That's totally fair. Um, but when people search for my product on Amazon and they intentionally put their products in front of them, that's not a good customer experience. And just don't lie and say you're trying to be customer centric when you're doing stuff like that was kind of as blunt as Charlie put it. So kind of an interesting space.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch them navigate through this stuff. And, you know, the, the counter argument would be, well, retailers have been doing it for years and you know, you, you old Roy uh, Dog food in a Walmart is in front of the Purina dog food, that kind of thing. Uh, but sometimes, you know, these the, the physical arguments don't really translate to, to the digital where, you know, it, 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 the customer has clearly expressed a brand. You, you should get them there quickly to, to be aligned with them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like a, a little less controversial, but like, you know, there's some labels like Amazon choice and, and some new labels that they're testing and people are like, is Amazon gaming those? And I, I may have made a smart out tweet at some point where I showed like staff picks from trader Joe's and I'm like, Oh my God, do you think some of these might not actually be staff picks?
0: <laughs> yeah. Cool. And, and, uh, uh, other news, any other Amazon news you want to cover?
1: Uh, No, I think those those were uh, the big things. Um, I I know we're running short on time. So let's let's uh, get to our last genre.
0: Yeah, we haven't talked to, about Mulligedon lately, but I was reading some reports that uh a we we've already had over seven thousand store closers, I think seven thousand three hundred, uh as of September first, I think was when this report came out. Um and that's more than we've ever had in any previous year. And we've still got three to four months to go. Now in the world of retail, you kinda if you can make it through October, you you're probably not gonna close for November and December. That thing's gonna be pretty pretty bad if you're gonna close for those two months. Um so I think it will slow down, but I think we have a chance of hitting eight or nine K here. Some of the, uh, this is based on data from BDO. So some of the top store closures uh, are Payless with twenty three hundred stores, J. with seven fifty, uh, Charlotte Russe is or Russe. I don't know how to say that I by twenty two. Yep. Uh, And then uh, on the watch list, they have several companies that are, are, you know, kind of, uh, they look at this kind of load of debt to assets. And then also, are they losing money, making money, and and you can kind of project a time when there may be a Chapter 11 event. Um, Forever 21 is on there, JCPenney, Asina, Pier One, and Francesca's. So, um, and then... I was surprised this didn't include more mattress stores because around me, you know, we used to have like 8,000 mattress stores just in Raleigh, Durham, and they're pretty much all closed all of a sudden. So uh, I wonder if this is under reporting a little bit. You know, I, I was kind of surprised that mattress stores weren't one of the big contributors here.
1: Well, so that's a great point uh, because something funny came out about all this. So uh, I think the macro points are totally true. Like we are, seeing more store closures in a single year than we've ever seen before. There are actually like, we'll see if they come to play or not, but like the, on that watch list, the one that they're like strong rumors are really preparing for a, um, a bankruptcy, which would be somewhat surprising at this point is forever 21, because per your point, like, you know, you really wouldn't want to, uh, go into bankruptcy right, right before the holiday season. And there, there are rumors that if they did, that the malls might be a, a potentially bail them out as they have, have done for at least one other apparel retailer in the past, Pistol. Um, So that's kind of interesting. But I, I, uh, the inside baseball, I found uh, an interesting study. Uh, so, so this, the study you just cited is from BDO, um, and they did a bunch of their own research. So most of their store closure information came from public disclosures. So it's public companies that said in a ten k. Uh, or in a, a investor call that they're planning to close X number of stores. Um, and so that's that was their data source for these store closings, and like I'm sure all the stores are closing. Um, BDO also cited uh, the source that we see most commonly for tracking these store closing, closings and openings, um, which is Coresight, which is a, a research firm that does this really useful kind of weekly tracker on how many stores are closing and how many stores are opening, a bunch of stores have opened this year, not enough to offset the closings, and that that would also be a first. So while there have been a lot of closings in the last couple of years, there have actually been more openings than closing. So this could be the first year where we had a net negative. And Coresight may have had a net negative last year even now that I think about it. But um, uh, here's what's interesting about that. So all of these companies are arbitrarily picking a list of well-known retailers and tracking the opening and closings. And so there's another market research firm out there, IHL, that does a bunch of retail research and they conducted a lot more comprehensive study. And they said, Hey, we are going to look at every retailer that operates 50 or more stores in North America and track how many they've opened and closed. Um, And we're going to estimate where they don't have public disclosures or we're going to call them and ask, and uh, we're going to use real estate records. And so instead of just kind of, tracking press releases, we're going to, uh, really do the math on all this. And, uh, they, not surprisingly, they found more store closures than, than, uh, BDO or, um, uh, uh, Corsite Um, but they found way more store openings than either of these companies. So per this IHL research that came out, there are still more stores opening than closing. Um, and so that, it's just interesting to think about. Like I, I think our macro points are totally true. That retail's not going away. That we're way overstored in the U.S. That we we do need to be closing stores and are closing stores, and that that's a a necessary adjustment. Um, but it is interesting. I feel like in the echo chamber of our space, like this site research gets gets reported and recited and blended into other people's research all the time. And it was kind of funny to see this IHL study come out and explicitly point out that the that the site research is not particularly rigorous and somewhat random. So it was like yeah. a little inside baseball research fight.
0: Yeah, and I wish square footage is what really matters, right? Because yes. you know, closing one J C Penny is is like, I don't know.
1: Yeah, you have to open an awful lot of away stores to make up for J C Penny. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, so that's what really matters and and I've never seen anyone really be able to track that very well unfortunately.
1: No, no, and uh the unfortunately like we've all seen the summaries of the IHl, I'll confess it's an expensive study to buy, so I haven't actually bought the research but I don't think they have the the net square footage in there. But just anecdotally, if you look at the lists of stores that are opening and closing, you're absolutely right. Like in general, there's there's more bigger stores closing and smaller stores opening.
0: Cool. One, uh, one last thing to make sure you put on your, your calendar. Uh, the Disney Plus subscriptions have opened up so you can go ahead and pre-buy that. So on November, I think it's 12th, it goes live. Uh, and they have a exciting new Star Wars TV live action show called The Mandalorian that, that uh, all fandom is pretty excited about. So make sure you sign up for that, Jason. And all yeah. of our Star Wars and, fan listeners.
1: And before any listeners panic, Scott and I uh, promised to pre-record a podcast so that we don't have to skip a week while Scott is binging The Mandalorian.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sadly, I don't think they're going to do it binge style. I think they're going to do. Um, it's hard for traditional TV people to to get their heads around it, but they're going to kind of release them one a week or something. So we'll uh-huh. have, still have time to podcast.
1: Good news. Good news. Uh, and like slightly related, there is this interesting thing. That, um, Target and Disney have announced that they're opening these permanent shop and shops. Um, and so you're going to see a bunch of unique Disney uh, merchandise at Target. Uh, I think that is potentially going to be beneficial to you, Scott. Um, but uh, I, I have seen speculation that the Disney Plus service could be one of the things that's heavily merchandised in that uh uh, in that assortment.
0: Cool. Hopefully they'll have, have more Star Wars target exclusives. Those are, those are the good ones.
1: Exactly. Uh, well, listen, that is a great place to wrap up this new show. Cause we've kind of perfectly used the allotted time as always. If if uh, listeners have a question or comment, feel free to hit us up on uh, our Facebook page or on Twitter. As always, uh, if you have time, we sure would appreciate it. If you'd go to iTunes and finally give us that five-star review that we've desperately been begging for. Um, we, have, uh, we sure appreciate uh, your time today, and uh, we have a bunch of great shows in the pipeline. So uh, appreciate you keep listening. Thanks, everybody. Until next time, happy e commerce You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.